This weekend, as you know, our nation pauses to remember those men and women who have given their lives in the service of our country, whether in battles or in other ways. They've given the ultimate sacrifice, as we say, and they've done so to preserve our liberties, our freedoms, including our freedom to do what we are doing here this morning, to gather together as a church without fear of uh, those breaking in or being arrested or anything like that by some kind of a uh, little potentate. But we are here with the freedom to proclaim salvation through Jesus Christ freely and openly. And much of that is due thanking those who have given their lives to continue the freedoms that we as a nation have. Now some may think at this time, America is not at war. Now, right now, America's at peace, it may be said by some. However, I don't believe that is the case at all. In fact, I know it's not the case. There is still a great battle being waged every day in our own land and in every land throughout the face of the earth. A great battle here, a great battle in the world. And I'm not speaking just of ISIS and the Taliban and the havoc that they are reaping, although that is true, and our nation should be at war against that. But that's not the battle I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about a battle between one nation and another nation over land or anything like that. I'm not even talking about the battle that exists in some cases in races or in cultures. Nations and cultures and battles that are taking place. That's not the one I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of a great battle that is for the most part unseen and unknown by many. In fact, unseen and unknown by most And yet there is a battle that is being waged outside of our sight, outside of our perception. It is a spiritual battle being waged for the hearts and the minds of people all around the world. And beyond even the people, there is a spiritual battle being waged in the heavenly places that I believe that sometimes we fail to take seriously or even to account for. And yet, we find it in the Scriptures. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. You might say to me, Pastor, what does this have to do with the appearances of Jesus following His resurrection as He came and He taught His disciples? Well, turn again, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 28, and we will continue on in our study of what our Lord says right in the midst of what we commonly call the Great Commission. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, it is on page 26 in your pew Bible. This does come right in the midst of our series regarding the ongoing work of the resurrected Savior as He says to His disciples here in verse 18 that when He came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Now this comes after we have seen We had already seen two of his appearances. We had focused on, first of all, his appearance at the lake or the Sea of Tiberias. And we saw how at that time from the Gospel of John, he restored Peter. He spoke kindly to them and he taught his disciples that they should go forth and feed my sheep. Now, Matthew doesn't record that account, but here we have the Great Commission, as he's going to tell them to go forth and make disciples. But in John 21, a little different, 
He tells them to feed my sheep, tend my sheep, be shepherds of the flock, leaders of the flock. So we saw that already from the Gospel of John. And then we went to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we talked about his appearances as recorded or reported by the Apostle Paul where he said that he appeared to so many and even to more than 500 at one time. And we talked a little bit about those appearances as recorded by the Apostle Paul. And now we're looking at his appearance on the mount. The only occasion in the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus appears to his disciples. And it is here at the only place that he said he would appear to them. The mount, right by the lake in Galilee. The mount in Galilee. And we saw already from this, his appearance on the mount, what we called the disciples worshiping the risen Lord. As it says in verse 15, that when they saw him, they worshipped him. And we made the point that worship is not just what people want to do. Worship is not just what people think they should do. Worship is what the Bible says. And the Bible teaches that worship is bowing down before the risen Savior. Worshipping before Him, bowing at His feet in reverence and in awe. That's biblical worship. We talked about that. We also saw last week that the Savior draws near. In verse 17, it says that Jesus came up and spoke to them so that the Savior shows that He is near to His people his closeness, our personal relationship to Him because of His saving work on the cross, opening to us access directly to Jesus into the Holy of Holies. And we also touched last week on the fact that He now then tells them that He is the all-powerful Head of all things. When He says that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now the words that he uses when he says all authority, pasa excusia, the power and the strength to rule everything. He has the power to be the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. And there is nothing outside of the purview of his reign or of his rule. All authority has been given to me. And we spoke just briefly about what that authority was, and we're going to pick up with that today. But I also remind you that he said, has been given to me. So we saw in the scriptures what that meant. And that is the teaching of the Bible that because of his finished work on the cross, because of his death, burial and resurrection he has been given even greater exaltation it's not that he didn't already have all the exaltation because he was already eternal god but the scripture shows that he's given even greater exaltation and glory because of his finished work of redemption and then his resurrection from the dead And time after time, we saw from the scriptures that even more exaltation and glory is given to him because of his resurrection. And we quoted one who said, Christ's resurrection from the dead was an instance of peculiar and special power and thus more glory to our Savior. Now today, we want to pick up a little bit with what he says when he says, all authority has been given to me. We see what the word is. He has the power to rule and to reign over everything. All authority. He is the reigning Lord. He is the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. But I want to look now at what he says. As he says, all authority has been given to me 
in heaven and on earth. And today we're going to look at that first thing that he says, that all authority is his in heaven and what that means. And we just read this and we think, well, that's true. All authority is his in heaven. But what does that really mean? Well, there are several ways that we can look at this. And the first one is the one that we can consider that all authority is his over the heavens themselves. That is the heavens. The universe is under the control of King Jesus. He is indeed the creator of the universe. Now we read that in Hebrews chapter 1 a few moments ago, but look, if you would, please, to John chapter 1. We were here last week, but let's go back and pick this up and deal with it regarding not just His eternality, but what He did. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the Word was God. And we saw that that talks about Jesus. And we mentioned the fact that Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem when He was born to Mary. But He existed from all eternity. And He is always God from all eternity. And the Scripture even says that He was in the beginning with God. But focus on this today. All things came into being through Him. Him, And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Him was life. All things came into being because of Christ. He is the Creator God. Now, let me ask you this. If He is the one who created everything... Is he not then also the one who is in control of everything? And I suggest to you that that is absolutely the case. Jesus Christ, as God, is in control of all the heavens and the earth. But the earth is next week. We're talking about the heavens this week. And I want to ask you to turn to a passage of Scripture with me just to see this. And we can only touch on this briefly. If you would, please turn to the book of Joshua. Joshua, chapter 10. Joshua, chapter 10. And Joshua, chapter 10 is in the Old Testament. It's on page 168 in your pew Bible. And as you're turning there, I want to make sure that you realize that I point out the fact that there are two schools of thought regarding God as Creator. One is known as deism. Deism teaches, okay, God created everything. We'll give you that. But God doesn't do anything after that. That God created the world, and I like what one preacher used to say, like, uh, like you would take a clock, and you'd wind, remember when you had to wind up a clock? Probably not, but you have to wind, he wound up the clock, and he set it there, and now all he's doing is standing and watching it wind down. Doesn't get involved, doesn't do anything, He's just up there, out there, somewhere, just watching and never intervenes, never does anything. These are the people that would deny the miracles of the Bible, that would deny that Jesus did any miracles, or that God did any miracles. There's nothing in the Bible miraculous, according to these people, because God doesn't do anything. That's deism. I am not a deist. I am what we call a Theist. Theists believe that there is a God, a creator God, and this God is actively involved in every area of his creation. So they said next week we'll talk about us. 
things on the earth. Because the text in Matthew, he says, All authority has been given to me in the heavens and on the earth. But today we're just looking at the heavens. And believe me, I'm trying to really control myself and not to get into some of the things that I'm going to get into next week regarding the earth and all these nuts running around crying, Global warming! Global warming! God's in control of the earth! Not men! And God is in control of the heavens. And here I want to point out to you what happens in Joshua as Joshua is fighting this battle in chapter 10. If you would, please look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter. Now look down to verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O son, stand still in Gibeon, O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. You know, This is one of those occasions where people point to the Bible and say, your Bible is a myth. Your Bible is a fairy tale. This cannot happen. Now, we know that it was not the sun setting. We know that it was the earth stopping its rotation. You know, people used to think, if the earth stopped its rotation, we'd all fly off. Did you know that? They used to think if the earth stopped going around, you'd all fly off. You ever see one of those little spinning wheel things at a playground? And it spins around, spins around, and the kids grab onto the thing, and it kind of pulls them off to the side like that, the centrifugal force pulling them off. Well, when it stopped, do people fall off? No, it's You fall off when it's spinning real fast. The earth could stop and you would not fall off. The the reality is scientists don't know why we stay on the earth. It's called gravity. But they don't know where it comes from or why it's here. They know a little bit about it, but they really don't know what causes gravity. Look it up. You'll find they really don't know. And so the question becomes then, are you going to believe God and his word, or are you going to believe man and their scientific theories? And I choose to believe the Bible. And I believe that this is accurate. I believe that this happened. And the fact that they quote the book Joshar, which is not a biblical book, shows that it wasn't confined to merely the Israelites, that other people knew of this. This was a worldwide event. So you're on the other side of the world, and the sun never comes up. It's night for a long time. They must have been wondering what's going on. And over here, we have Joshua fighting against the Amicalites, and that's why they never had a day. Because Joshua took their day. And the sun did not go down for 24 hours or more. Now that is an amazing account. He's fighting this battle. God promised him that there wouldn't be any that would stand before him. And God made sure that they could deliver them, that he would deliver his people and destroy those God-hating pagans, which is what they were doing. 
This is an amazing account. I ask you to turn to another similar found in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 38. Isaiah chapter 38. That's page 513 in the Pew Bible. Look down to verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, and I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. This shall be a sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has spoken. Behold, I will cause the shadow on the stairway which has gone down with the sun on the stairway of Ahaz to go back ten steps. So the sun's shadow went back ten steps on the stairway on which it had gone down. Now obviously there was a stairway there and there was light coming in and as the earth turns, the shadow moves and what Isaiah, through the word of the prophet Isaiah, God actually caused the rotation of the earth to go back a few degrees. And so the shadow went back where it was perhaps an hour or two before. Can that happen? Can God actually make the earth go the opposite direction for a little bit? Well, that's what happened. And again, men mock and say, that is impossible. You know what? They're absolutely right. It is impossible. But not for the one who created it. Not for Jesus who created the earth. It's possible for him to stop the earth. It's possible for him to even turn its rotation back. This is unheard of. And yet it's what the Bible teaches. And we believe that the Bible is true. And I don't really have a problem believing that God could do this. I'd like to see it, but I do believe it. I do believe that it did happen. This to say that Jesus has all, all authority over the heavens. And there's another thing that we find in our day. This uh, whole bent that the current administration has towards changing NASA's goal to find the origins of the, of the world or the universe. It's not just this administration. It's been going on for a few years. But NASA, it seems, is bent on everything they do now trying to show how the worlds or the universe began. Why do we send men to Mars? Why? Because they want to show that there used to be water up there or there used to be life up there or something. They're trying to find something that will point to the origins of the world. And one of their big things is the Hubble telescope. And they have the Hubble telescope pointed out into the vast regions of the universe and it shows stars being born. And they're always talking about stars dying and collapsing and black holes and things of that nature. And they are all, they're all saying, look, we can show you how it began all by itself. The fact of the matter is that if there were no God, there would be no stars. No solar systems, no galaxies, no nothing. Because God created everything from nothing. And if that were not the case, nothing would be here, including you. So God created it all. And so stars are born and stars die, not by accident, but by the very hand of God. He has authority over all. All the heavens. 
But now I invite you to please turn back to Matthew chapter 28, because that's just the tip of the iceberg. Let's see what a more comprehensive understanding of what our Lord is saying might be. As he says in verse 18, that all authority has been given to me in the heavens. And it is not merely all authority over the heavens themselves, but it is all authority over the heavenly host in heaven. Because this is that part of the universe that you and I don't see. There is an entire existence that we call heaven, that we are unable to and seldom see. I say seldom because I actually know some who have seen, and I believe this, have actually seen some of the heavenly host. You hear of men, good men, godly men, who speak of these things, having seen unexplainable, inexplicable appearances of angels, inexplicable events that have taken place even in modern days. Now, I am not one of these who looks under every rock for demons or behind every curtain for angels. That's not the case. But we cannot ignore the reality of their existence. And this, I believe, in large part, is what Jesus is saying when he says, All authority has been given me in heaven. If you would, please, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. As we begin by looking at what we might call ministering spirits, that he is in charge of all ministering spirits or what some might call the good angels. Remember, God created everything. The heavens and the earth, and everything that is on the earth, and everything that is in the heavens. And the Bible speaks of and often shows the existence of these heavenly angels. And they are not little chubby things with arrows, pointed at your wife's heart. That is not what angels are so much. Angels are mighty warriors, mighty ministers to do God's will. And I promise that one day I'm going to do a series on angels. I have been requested to do so, and I'm going to. Not yet. And this can't be a series about that. But I do want you to see the reality of their existence even in the Bible. Here, if you are in Luke chapter 1, what happens in verse 26? I won't even go into what happened with Zechariah in the Holy of Holies. But verse 26, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering What kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And so on. You know the account. But this was the appearance of an angel. Now the word angel in the Greek generally means messenger. This was a messenger from God who came and appeared in bodily form to Mary. Notice that he was visible. 
she was able to see him. Notice also that he could speak. She was able to hear him and what he said. And so we have this messenger of God doing the work that God sent him to do because it says, sent from God. That's verse 26. Gabriel, even as a name, Gabriel was sent from God to do what God bid him to do, and that was to tell Mary that she was going to be the mother of the Savior, the mother of the Christ. Now, we've just come through and talked about and have mentioned even in the Gospel of Matthew in recent weeks, the fact that when the women came to the tomb to see Jesus' body, who was there? Angels. Differing accounts, but at least one or two angels were there at the tomb and spoke to the women. They saw the angel, and the angel always has to say, don't be afraid, because you'd be afraid if you saw an angel. But the angels spoke to the women, told them what Jesus said, told them that Jesus had been raised from the dead. But there's also another angel mentioned by name in the Bible several times in the book of Daniel. But if you would, please look to Jude. I won't even tell you what chapter. Jude is the book right before the big book Revelation. And it only has one chapter. So that's why I won't tell you what chapter. And because of the sake of time and Trying to focus on this, if you would, just look down to verse 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Who is this? Michael. The archangel, as I said, he's mentioned, I think, four times in the book of Daniel, the prophet, about how he was the chief warrior for God, battling against the demons in unseen wars, unseen battles that take place, spiritual battles in heavenly places. But there is indeed this one called Michael, the archangel. This is why the name Michael had been so popular for uh, so many years. Wouldn't you want to be the archangel? I mean, it's good to be the archangel. This is real, though. This one, this angel is real. Now, Jesus, the point we want to make is the ruler even of angels. He has all authority over these created beings. And that brings us to that passage we read in Hebrews chapter 1. If you'd go back to Hebrews chapter 1, please. Here in Hebrews chapter 1, we pick it up in verse 3. And he... And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. You see, he upholds all things in the heavens, all things on earth. But notice he says then, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is he talking about there? When he made purification of sins, that is the complex of his death, burial, and resurrection. He gave his life on the cross. He was in the tomb. On the third day, he rose again, proving that he had paid the price of your sins. He made purification for your sins. And then after that, he ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. So this as well is in the context of his resurrection. And then he says, having become as much better than the angels. 
It's not like he wasn't better before. But it showed who he was as exalted God, as he gave his life and was raised again. Now, having become much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. You know, there are some who may have suggested that Jesus was just another angel. And the argument to the writer to the book of he- to the Hebrews is suggesting and saying pointedly, he's not just another angel. He's much better than any angel. He's far superior than any angel. For to which of the angels has he ever said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Jesus was not an angel. Jesus was the Son of God. Far better, far superior. Look down towards the end of chapter 1, verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And they Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's speaking of the angels, ministering spirits. But to Jesus, you sit at the right hand of God. No angel does that. They're ministering spirits. But Jesus is the ruler at the right hand of God. And so what we have here is the fact that Jesus is greater than the angels. Look over to Revelation chapter 5. We were here last week, but I just want to point this out, and I must be brief. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders, who are they? The four living creatures, the 24 elders, these are those in the heavenly host, fell down before the Lamb, one holding a harp of golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's where your prayers go. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you. Who? The Lamb who was slain. The Lamb. They were bowing before the Lamb, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from among every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Talking about you, the church. But who are these heavenly hosts bowing and worshiping Jesus because he has all authority, all authority over the heavenly host based upon his place as the Son of God and based upon his finished work of redemption. Jesus has all authority in heaven. Yes, Jesus has all authority over the hosts and they will bow to him. But as he says that he has all authority in heaven, there are other groups who would be involved in that statement. Other groups of heavenly hosts who would be around that Jesus has authority over. And for that, look at Jude once again. Jude. And we saw in verse 9, we talked about Michael, the archangel. But look what it says. He disputed with the devil. Uh Uh-oh. There is a battle taking place 
with spiritual wickedness. And yes, the Bible does actually teach that there is a devil. The term Lucifer you will not find in most of your Bibles. The King James Version has it in one verse. But the devil is spoken of in our Bibles. And right here, it's in the same verse as Michael the archangel. But now go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This is a very well-known passage. Matthew chapter 4. And if you go down to this text here, in the beginning actually of the chapter, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. That's Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. And as you look down, you see that the devil tempted him several times and Jesus continued to rebuke him. But if you deny that there is an actual devil and his minions who do wicked work and wicked deeds, then you're denying the teaching of the Bible. Because this is what happened. The devil was the one who was the tempter that came to our Lord Jesus even in the wilderness. Turn over the page, chapter 6. Two pages in my Bible. And if you look at what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, down towards the end, verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That word is the evil one. The evil one. And that's why he's talking about temptation. As Jesus was tempted by the devil, we are as well. Now, it's not like what Flip Wilson said back in the 70s, the devil made me do it. You sin because you want to sin. But there's no question that part of his demonic work is the temptation of the saints and the temptation of men to lure them away from the sound teaching of God, to lure them away from truth. How do I know that? If you would, please turn to Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. In this passage, our Lord gives what is commonly called the parable of the sower. And he speaks about the one who has gone forth and scatters good seed. Verse 11. Now in this parable, the seed is the word of God. And those that fell beside the road, those beside the road, are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. How often do we hear about this and know about this? That people darken the door of a church. They hear the preaching of the Word of God. They hear what the Bible says. And maybe they're convicted by it. Wow, I'd never heard that before. I didn't know that I was a sinner in need of salvation or else I would go to hell. I didn't know that. And what happens? They go out and they go, ah, you know what? We don't, we don't really need that. I mean, that, that Bible, that Bible is just a book written by men. And we don't have to believe what that preacher said. What does he know? What, what is the Bible? That's not true. And the devil, according to Jesus is the one that comes and tempts them and tries to take away the truth from their hearts and from their minds so that they will just go on their way. And our Lord even says, and not be saved. Part of the work of the devil is to keep you from believing God. And a lot of this is what we were just talking about. We want to believe science. We don't want to believe God's word. We want to believe what men say. We don't want to believe God's word. And part of that is the work of the devil in our day. Do you realize that in our day, the God of this world, the United States of America, is the God of affluence? The God of affluence. That's small g God, by the way. 
And we are so affluent in America that people are more concerned about how much money they can have, what kind of cars they can get, what kind of boat they can have. They're more concerned. Not that any of those things are wrong. But in some cases, they consume people. And they are more concerned about those things rather than God. Now, God blesses His people with many of those things. It's true. But for many people, they don't care about God. And all they care about is affluence. And that is the work of the devil in our day here in America. Now, that may not be true in some places in South America or in Africa where they don't have the affluence we have. But I am convinced that the devil himself thought, well, how can I take America away from the things of the Bible and the things of God, which this country was basically founded on? How can I take those things away from the people of America? I know what I'll do. I'll make them all rich. And for the last 200 years, that's what's been happening as America has gotten more and more wealthy and we've gotten more and more things. And so the things of this world lure people away from the things of God. And I believe it's demonic. Now we are blessed of God and have much, but we are thankful to God for it. God gives us everything we have. Even the intelligence to earn a living, God gives us. That's what it says in the scriptures. So we are blessed of God, but beware that the devil would ever come and seek to tempt you and lure you away with the things of the world. Because that's what he does. This is what Jesus is talking about here in this chapter. There's so many other places that I could turn to, but I'm just going to ask that you look at this one, and then we're going to go on to see how it is that Jesus is in control. Look at Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse, well, we'll start at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Why, Paul? Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Those those battles I was talking about. I mean, we, we are really unaware of much of what the Apostle just said is going on. The forces of darkness with spiritual wickedness having battles in heavenly places. It's going on. And you're involved. We must stand firm against the schemes of the devil, and be able to fight the battle. And how do you do that? Only as you're armed with truth. But people, listen, we've got to be prepared. There's a battle taking place, a spiritual battle every day against the wickedness of the devil, against the schemes of the devil. This is what he does. But now I ask you this. Is the devil more powerful than Jesus? You realize that there are some people today that teach that the devil rules the world and that Jesus isn't ruling anything. He doesn't even have a kingdom yet. He will have a kingdom one day, but that's far off in the future. hasn't happened yet. But right now, the devil is the ruler of the world. Well, you know, the devil is powerful. And he does have his own world. And that world does consist of his minions, his demons, and all of those who follow him, those who are not saved. But that's not the say that he is the ruler of all the world. That is King Jesus. 
King Jesus is the ruler of all the world, and King Jesus is the ruler of the devil and of his minions. If you would, please take your Bibles and look back to chapter 8 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to look down to verse, so we'll pick it up in 16. This is speaking about what Jesus was doing when many had come after him. Verse 16, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. With a word. Jesus didn't have to go around, oh, do this, do that, lay hands on him, anything. With a word, he cast out all the demons of those who were brought to him with a word. Now, how could that be? Because he has all authority in the heavens. He has all authority over the heavenly host, the good ministering angels, and even the fallen demonic angels. He is in control. And with a word, he casts them out. Look down, if you would, to verse 28. Verse 28. When he came to the other side, into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him. As they were coming out of the tombs, they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by the way, by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? There there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are there going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine. The whole herd rushed down to a steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Now, the parallel account in, I believe, the Gospel of Luke tells us that the name of these demons was Legion, for, there were, for they were many. Many demons were possessing this man, these men. And they entreated Christ, our Lord, not to send them into the abyss, but send them into the pigs. And so he gave them their request, sent them into the pigs. But then the pigs ran down an incline and drowned in the sea. So ultimately, they all went into the abyss anyway. But the point is that Jesus had control over these demons. Though they were many, though they were powerful, he had control. And again, I could show you account after account in the New Testament of Jesus casting out demons like that. Just by his word. Be gone. Come out of that boy. Whatever it was, Jesus always cast them out. You will not find one occasion in the New Testament when a demon wouldn't do what Jesus told him to do. Or when a demon was more powerful than Jesus. Even Satan himself, in the time of temptation, Jesus said, be gone, and he left. Jesus has all authority over the heavenly host, including demons and the devil himself. Whether good angels, whether bad angels, the heavenly host is under the authority of King Jesus. He is the ruler over all of them. Look one more, Luke chapter 10, because this is important for us today. If you look at chapter 10 and verse 1, after this the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them out as pairs in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. 
And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs into the midst of wolves. Now look over to verse 16. The ones who listen to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now, verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So Jesus sends people out, his disciples out, to do what? To preach. To tell men and women that Christ is the Messiah. And as they go out, even the demons were subject to them. And Jesus said, I saw Satan himself falling like lightning. What we are doing today is a spiritual battle against darkness, against evil, against Satan and his minions. We are preaching God's word and we are not just having games and stories and jokes and fun. We are telling you the word of God and we are telling you of the authority of Christ, the authority over heaven, the authority over the host of heaven. That He is the one to be feared. He is the one to be revered. He is the one to be worshipped. And as you worship Him, and as you serve Him, the demons will fall. Subject to the preaching of His Word. And Satan himself will fall like lightning. The ultimate fate of Satan can be seen in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, and we don't even have the time to turn there, as ultimately he is cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Who casts him into the lake? You think he's going to jump? Okay, I give up. He doesn't jump into the lake of fire. He's cast into the lake of fire by King Jesus. Because Jesus has all authority over the heavens. All authority is his. You don't need to fear the devil. You don't need to fear. I'm going to close with this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I know we've looked at a lot of verses. But that's good medicine for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, or able to endure. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Satan can't tempt you beyond your ability. And God will always provide you a way of escape because he has authority even over the devil. Good angels, bad angels, the heavenly host, the seraphim, the creatures that surround the throne, Jesus Christ has authority over them all. Do not fear Satan. He's powerful. Don't take him for granted. But your king, King Jesus, has authority over him. He wins. I've read the end of the book. He defeats him, ultimately. And that means that you, ultimately, will be with Him in heaven as you serve Him. 
Now, my final warning today is don't try to fight this battle without Jesus because you will lose. You must be part of His kingdom. You must be saved by His grace. He must be your king because if He is not your king, then the devil is your king. The devil is your father and you will lose following the devil. Only as you follow King Jesus will you prevail. This is what the scripture says. I know we've looked at a lot. I thank you for your patience and your attentiveness. But hear me please as we close. You must be part of the kingdom of God and King Jesus. Or your fate will be the same as the devil and his minions. Cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Come to Jesus. Hear his voice. Cry out to him for mercy and he will save you. Let's pray.